0: You're listening to TIP.
1: They already had a Dunkin' Donuts in one suite, had a dentist suite, a tenant in another suite, and there was one vacant suite. So for me, it's like, okay, if I could at least have one space, I have the potential to make three times my money, I'm going to go knock on every single door in the entire city if I have to, until I find that right tenant to take the space.
2: In this week's episode, I talk with Robert Ravani about how he built his self-funded single owner commercial real estate company, Black Lion. He's the president of Black Lion and got his start in entrepreneurship with a footwear company as his first business, which he sold for $150,000 when he was only a teenager. He first entered the real estate world during the economic downturn of 2008 and 2009, where he found a unique opportunity to buy, flip, and resell inexpensive buildings in areas that needed development. In 2014, Ravani created Black Lion. To date, the company has transacted $500 million in real estate deals across the United States. I have a lot of people who reach out to me requesting to be guests on the show, but very few of them actually stand out. Robert stood out because of his quote-unquote edgy style, and that's what he describes it as in this episode. For the longest time, only people wearing suits and ties were seen as successful by society, but that's just not really the case anymore. I personally like wearing a suit and dressing up every once in a while, but I don't see it as necessary or as any indication of someone's abilities. Like Robert, the guest today, I have my own style, which includes riding dirt bikes, wearing a backwards hat, and being a bit of a fitness junkie. So all of that is to say, when Robert reached out to be on the show and I saw that he was also breaking the mold of what success is supposed to look like, while having massive success, I was excited to bring him on the show. I'm curious what your guys' thoughts are on having a non-professional style or personal brand. Tweet at me on Twitter or shoot me a DM on Instagram and let me know what you think. Now, let's dive right into this week's episode with Robert Rivani.
0: You're listening to Real Estate Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have another Robert. Robert Rivani, Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Robert. Before we dive into your real estate specific businesses, I want to talk a bit about your footwear business that you sold for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars when you're just a teenager. Talk to us a bit about that business and how it all happened.
1: Yes, yeah, so to make a really long story short, I didn't come from much money growing up, and I wanted to to create a side hustle to be able to make money to buy the things that you know most teenagers growing up want to buy shoes. Jewelry, as you have it, certain clothes and whatnot. I saw an opportunity to be able to buy some of these, you know, really um, high profile Jordan shoes that were selling for double on eBay. If I waited in line overnight and was able to grab a couple of pairs or have a buddy with me to grab a couple of pairs, we can sell them on eBay and double our money. And that could pretty much pay for me to be able to get a you know, pair of shoes that I wanted for free. Seeing that possibility, you know, turned out to, you know, if I could do this 10 times, 20 times, 30 times a month, it could be a real business. If I'm making five, 10 grand a month, you know, I think I was 15, 16 at the time. You can't get much better than that in doing something you love to do. I got to the point where one person approached me because I'd be like one of those sneakerheads where I'd have all my shoes stacked on each other in my bedroom and I'd like lick the bottom of the shoes and I'd have that whole hype going on behind it. And then one person, I'd look, I just love your collection. It's too hard for me to buy this many at one time. So one person just stroked me a check and he's like, I want to take them all off your hands. And that was
2: the end of the, the business and the game. Wow. And how did you transition from kind of that business eventually as you got a little bit older into real estate? Did you use that money to start investing in real estate?
1: Yeah, for sure. So my I was uh, doing
2: property management um, in my younger
1: teens uh, as well. So I had like a fundamental, basic idea of how real estate worked from that gig. It taught me a lot of the important things that you look out for when you come to buy a property. But you know, like everybody else, when you see other people doing what you're doing or transitioning from you know property management to being the developer. I see some people were making half a million dollars a million bucks on a transaction at the time. I'm like, why am I in this to make three percent for management fees? Or, you know, there's nothing wrong with a management fee company, but if you're really trying to equity build, having that kind of income stream is never gonna make you a hundred millionaire or a billionaire. That's where that transition or that light bulb hit. I'm like, okay, it's time to pivot and it's time to get into this the redevelopment game. And I did use some of my, I did use the majority of my money into the first couple properties that I bought in Georgia. Uh, this was during like, the Great Recession time when properties were actually affordable, not like today.
2: What were those, before we talk about what kind of properties they were, how were you able to start investing in one of the worst real estate markets that we've ever seen? I mean, you mentioned the prices were a lot better than today, but just right. from a psychological perspective, you see all of these really quote unquote successful and experienced people running out of the fire and you were running in. So talk to us a bit about what your thoughts were going into that.
1: Yes. It's the mentality of, at least the mentality that worked for me was like, let's say for example, somebody had a property that was once sold for, the property I bought was once sold for like 2.1 or $2.2 million at its peak. And went through foreclosure, REO, the bank's like, hey, we just want to get rid of this property. And they were trying to sell for around $600,000. In the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, if it was once worth 2122, whatever the number was, and I'm buying it for 600 grand, I'm buying it 33 cents on the dollar how much lower can a property of that magnitude with income go? There's a point. It's like saying "What I bought that property, was 1.5. No, because even if the market does turn and things are really great, my spread is very minimal. It's 25, 30%. That's what normal people will make in a redevelopment. But if I could bring this back to 2, 1, 2, 2, and I'm buying it for 600, you know, having a 350% return, that's exciting for me. Was I fearful? For sure, was it good that I was a little bit ignorant and young too, and I didn't really know or understand the full grasp of what was happening? Like everyone in the Great Recession knew, hey, look, you know, stuff's really bad, market's tough, things are really scary, foreclosures, are real. But I was kind of young and naive, to be honest. And part of it, you know, worked to my favor. It's like I was a gunslinger. I'm like, well, I could lease up the property. I'm capable of doing it. I could do it. And I just had that mentality, and it worked
2: for me. How did you go for, or why did you go right for that type of property? A lot of people that are younger or even just inexperienced with real estate, they'll start with a much smaller deal. They'll start residential or they'll start with a single family or a duplex. They won't go for these larger commercial properties. What made you want to go for those? The good thing was, like I mentioned, I had
1: some experience when it came to the commercial side, through the property management part. So it wasn't as scary for me. Also, this building was only 6,000 square feet. So again, it was, it's like similar to what somebody would have for a triplex or kind of development. So it wasn't huge. And I would never recommend for somebody to go into their first project or first property redevelopment. into a big one because you just need to learn the nitty gritty of it before you get into that. It wasn't really that scary just because of its sheer size. And I had experience in the retail part of it. So the good thing about this property was there was only three tenant suites. They already had a Dunkin' Donuts in one suite, had a dentist suite a tenant in another suite, and there was one vacant suite. So for me, it's like, okay, if I can at least have one space, have the potential to make three times my money. I'm gonna go knock on every single door in the entire city if I have to until I find that right tenant to take the space. You know, luck had it; I was able to grab Jimmy John's to do a uh, Jimmy John's drive through there, and they were excited. They even though the pandemic, had, I mean, the, sorry, the recession hurt them they were still doing business and they're still wanting to expand. So I got lucky slash hard work and pounding the pavement and knocking the doors versus a lot of other people just you know put up a lease sign and they hope and pray that a tenant will come to them. And for me, that just, that never worked.
2: My camera that I'm using for this makes the background nice and blurry. So it makes it look a little fancy, but if you could read it, the sign behind me says, the harder you work, the luckier you get. And so, I mean, that's exactly, it's one of my favorite sayings. It's exactly what you just explained.
1: Yeah. Yeah. look, I took the Jordan shoe mentality of never giving up, sleeping on pavement overnight to try to choose to go knock on every single door and not be ashamed and say, look, this is the kind of stuff I have. This is the property. And you know, during those times, everyone was struggling. And the tough part for a lot of these businesses, when the market was on fire, not to get too much into detail of rent, some of these people were paying you know, mid $30 a foot rent versus I was offering a, a similar product for like $18 a foot rent. But the only reason I could do that was because my cost basis was so much lower than that other guy. So the tenants were excited and saying, well, I'm almost saving 50% on rent and I get a newer looking property that the owner's going to put money into. So it's kind of a win-win for both sides in that sense as well.
2: We're talking about the Great Recession. Now I want to talk about another time period that might not have been as, as difficult as then, but was still been difficult for a lot of people nonetheless, and that's COVID if you go to your website, the very first thing you see is a short video clip that says delivering best in class retail, dining, and nightlife experiences. And the first thing that popped in my head when I saw that was, wow, this is a really great website for a real estate company, but two, wow, those businesses must really have struggled during COVID. Talk to us a bit about your experience with your business and real estate through the pandemic.
1: That's a fantastic, fantastic question. COVID was a shock, uh, obviously, for everybody. And it wasn't what anyone could have imagined, you know, with the restrictions and the regulations. And what made it more difficult was different markets and different governments and those local markets had different rules. So I had a portfolio in probably 10 states two years ago. And like you'd have, you know, California, which was ultra conservative when it came to COVID and, you know, they had to they didn't force tenants to pay rent and there was delays on that. They wouldn't allow tenants to open for business versus, you know, Florida in the beginning of the pandemic was worried and concerned and had some restrictions. But after a while, they decided to open up and, you know, a lot of businesses and a lot of people, owners like myself saw that and said, OK, while well, I respect California and some of these other governments are a little bit more strict. Florida is flourishing. You know, a lot of people are moving there. A lot of people made that their new vacation spot to get away from their homes or wanted to have the ability to, to live a normal life, even though they understood the risks. And believe it or not, my entire portfolio we had like ninety eight or ninety nine percent collection. We did not really get too hurt. We worked with tenants to help them on their obtaining their PPP loans. We helped delay their rent and said, "Look, if you can't afford it, you know, obviously show us proof that your business is struggling." and then we'll work with you guys we'll do a payment plan we'll defer your rent and then let you pay it back next year over a period of 12 months or whatever it is or there was some tenants that say hey look I've been a great tenant for 10 years times are tough. Do you mind giving me a couple months free rent? And while I'm getting through this, and then I'll extend my lease for a longer term period. So I'd say the key to our success through going through the pandemic was the ability to, to maneuver and work with our tenants and understand their perspective of what's going on and figure out a, a solution for both sides that, that was mutually beneficial. Because a lot of people sit there and say, look, the landlord should foot the bill, the landlord this, the landlord that. At the end of the day, we have bills too, right? Property tax, insurance, got to pay our lender our lender never came to us and said, hey, Robert, don't pay interest for three months. Don't don't even worry about it. We got you. That wasn't the case. They understood the hardships we had. We understood the hardships they had, and we just found a happy medium uh, for everyone to survive through. And thankfully, everybody did. And, you know, like you mentioned on our website, restaurants, nightlife, hospitality, our tenants flourished, you know? After the the couple rough months, we ended up leasing up our entire Miami portfolio 100% and have all these new nightlife hospitality groups coming in from all over the country, all over the world now, because Miami's becoming that new hotspot
3: for the United States. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
4: Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant Now enhanced with real-time stock data, let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is hundred percent free. Ask Meka questions like: Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon? And millions of other queries right at your fingertips. Visit Meka.com.
3: You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes, and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the funds prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Alright,
2: back to the show. This is not to say that the pandemic is over. But as things related to COVID have seemed to slow down a little bit lately, we get hit with inflation and increasing interest rates pretty dramatically. How have rising interest rates impacted your real estate business and acquisitions process?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's a great question. It's something I'm actually talking about daily, even today, the 10 year and five year creeped over three percent. I think what's scary is not so much what the rate is, because you know, myself, I've been used to four percent, five percent rates when I first started. It's how fast they are moving. You typically don't see a hundred basis points spread in 30 or 60 days. It's it's going up extremely quickly in order to fight off the inflation and try to slow down the economy. I can't say, you know, a lot of people say, Well, Robert, you know, interest rates, oh my God, it's gonna you know, a game changer for the business. I said, Look, at the end of the day, if you're in real estate redevelopment and if one percent higher interest makes or breaks your deal, you're doing the wrong deal. Just stop doing what you're doing. That's not to say be okay with higher interest rates, but it's just the cost of doing business. It is what it is. So yeah. Has it affected me? Yes. In the sense that I don't want to keep paying more money, but does it make or break my business? Absolutely not. It's just a, you know, it's another growing expense like everything else.
2: Are you changing anything about how you're approaching deals, the debt markets, or anything like that in the next six to 12 months? Or are you just really being crucial and conservative with your underwriting?
1: Yeah, I mean, typically myself, I don't ever leverage my portfolio more than 50%. That's just not something I've ever been comfortable with. So, for people that are highly leveraged or take outside money and they're making money off interest rate spreads or stuff like that, I'm sure it affects their business a lot more. But since I own my company myself and I don't pay outside investors, it really does not affect me in the, in the sense that when it comes to new property purchases, I take it advantage in the sense that if a seller is trying to sell a property in the ultra aggressive cap rate range that the market has kind of allowed us to do since rates have been so low over the past three to, to four years, I say, look, rates are now four and a half, five 5%. I'm no longer buying a five cap deal. I'm buying your deal at five and a half or six. So I'm using that to my advantage to try to push spreads on cap rates when it comes to buying a new property.
2: Explain for somebody listening that doesn't know or hasn't heard of the spread between cap rates and interest rates, why that's important and what it means.
1: Why it's important in the sense that if you're borrowing at, let's say 5% is probably the new rate that's going around for these commercial loans. It doesn't make sense for you to buy a property at a four and a half cap because your leverage, you typically want to take out leverage so you can make the spread between your loan interest rate and the property's income stream. So you want to get your loan at 4% and get your income at you know your cap rate at 5%, so you have that 100 basis point delta, but now if your interest rates are higher than your cap rate, then what's the point of buying the property if you're just buying it for cash flow purposes? There's probably other investments at that point that you can get better returns than going and buying a single tenant.
2: What is your capital structure or your capital stack for most of your deals? You just briefly mentioned it, but are you the sole owner of all your properties? Obviously, you probably have some debt for those properties as well, like you said at 50% loan to value, but you don't take any outside investors? No, no, I never have. And I, it's
1: not that I don't like partners or whatnot, but I have a very specific style to the way I like doing things, and I've been pretty successful at it. For now, there's no plan to bring on investors. In the next couple of years, the, the thought's been thrown around internally of doing a fund and raising money to grow exponentially. But I have a very big saying that pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered, so I don't like to get too greedy too fast. Just taking my time to build the pyramid of the company from ground up, especially since we've evolved so much from you know, small mom and pop shops, a bigger uh, real estate company. It's, I'm, I'm taking things slow. I don't, I don't want to get ahead of myself per se.
2: I mentioned it before, but your website is one of the best that I've seen for a, re- Thank you. You're welcome, for a real estate company. What role do you think your website and the media presence that you have play in your deals? Does it make any impact?
1: Yeah, for sure. Look, I, up until God, 12 months ago, I had a private Instagram account. I didn't have much on social media. I, I didn't really think much of it because when you're trying to lease properties in, in a suburb of Atlanta, it's not really going to make or break you bringing in a tenant. But now that uh, I've gotten into this higher profile food and beverage and hospitality scene and the major anchor players in these power centers, a lot of people are tracking social media and a lot more companies are seeing the value in TikTok and Instagram to be able to express their company's brand and message similar to mine. And you know, I bought a property in South Beach uh, a month ago or so, and we pretty much leased it within the first couple of weeks, just because of social media and that presence. It's making a huge impact. You know, the website's definitely edgy and different, like myself, obviously. And you know, it's important to me because real estate has been such a cookie cutter, mundane business for such a long time. And while it works for some people, that's great. I want to bring the revolution and the and the difference. Uh, you know, he, there could be a new generation of real estate investors, a new way to look at things. You can have a beard and not wear a suit and go to the office and be okay with that, and there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with the other side. But this is just my way of doing it in the way I want. I want people to see our brand going forward.
2: I have to say that's one of the things that I liked most about your social media presence. And when you guys reached out to come on the show, it really stood out to me that you kind of have that edgier brand. It's not necessarily my personal style. what I do resonate with is that it's not the suit and tie kind of style. Like I'm wearing a backwards hat right now. That's kind of more my style. And I feel the exact same way that you do when it comes to, you don't need a suit and tie to be successful in real estate. And that's something that I'm trying to push with my personal brand as well. So I really, really like that you do that. Appreciate it. Thank you. A few of the properties that your firm, Black Lion, owns are strip malls or properties that are heavily dominated by retail businesses. With... What seemed to be a general consensus over the past five years or so that Amazon and e-commerce businesses were going to destroy physical retail. What interested you in these types of specific properties?
1: That's a that's a fantastic question. It's something you know, I battled around in my head during the pandemic significantly. Uh, there's some shopping centers on our website. I think that are a little bit they've been sold. We no longer own them. But what what our focus went from was let's not invest in the smaller strip centers. Those could potentially be more susceptible. Because if you're a new business coming into a market, it's called a mom and pop business or a regional chain, you typically want to go near the big anchors that bring the big draws, Walmart, Lowe's, Home Depot, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, okay, if we're going to invest in this category that without a doubt has been heavily affected by all the things you mentioned, it's best to go in the best of class in, those, in that asset class. So if I'm going to buy a shopping center like the one I just bought in New Jersey for $50 million, it's got Lowe's, it's got Walmart, it's got Michaels, it's got Five Below, it's got Bed Bath, it's got every national chain, PetSmart, Wells Fargo, whatever, it's got, got them all. So if a customer wants to go to a property, more likely than not, they're going to come to mine because they have so many options. Versus if you go to a strip center with six tenants, they may or may not need that, or they may say, hey, I don't want to go to this hair salon. I want to go to this other hair salon that's part of the Lowe's property because I can go get something from the hardware store, I can go to my hair salon. I can go pick up groceries. You have all what we call synergy in shopping centers. Naturally, those bigger shopping centers have that synergy. So that's why it started shifting from, okay, if we're going to be in the real estate game, if we're going to be in the retail game that has these effects, we're going to go best in class, which is exactly where we pivoted buying, you buying know, a couple of these large power centers from these institutional REITs. And then the other part of the business, just so I can not have all my eggs in one basket, like you mentioned, was the high-profile restaurant, food and beverage where a customer is spending 125, 150 dollars a person and wants that experience of going in person versus buying it online. You want to take a date out, you're taking them to a restaurant. I mean now you could probably date in the Metaverse, but um, if you want the personal experience, that's where you would probably be going.
2: When I look at the states you're investing in Arizona, California, Florida, Illinois, New Jersey and Texas. I don't see a pattern of looking for landlord friendly states. How do you consider the general legal favorability towards landlords or tenants when you're entering a market? How do you analyze a market in general?
1: Yeah, that's another great question. You, know, you always hear from everybody it's best to invest in Texas and Florida. They're more landlord friendly, state income tax, this, that, the other. And, and that's great. Don't get me wrong, a lot of my properties are now there. The issue when you're when you're talking about making serious money in equity, if everybody is looking in the same market, like yourself or landlord-funding market, what opportunities are going to be left for me if everybody in the country is looking in the same areas? So while I've been lucky and, and great at finding great properties in great markets, there was a long, you know, there's a while where you have to go against the grain. A lot of the properties I bought were in Milwaukee or in the suburbs of Chicago and markets that were depressed or heavily affected still from, you know, the early recession years ago. It's that balance of going against the grain and saying, look, if I'm into this property for a year or 18 months, which was my typical MO when it came to these deals, it wasn't as big of a proponent for me because I'm not holding this property for 10 to 20 years. So I have to think of headwinds and oh my God, what's this market going to turn into in 10 years from now? How's the government going to affect it? I'm thinking, hey, what's my business plan for this local demographic? Can I execute my business plan in 18 months? And if so, what's the next steps? that's how I think of it more than thinking about it from a longer perspective where a lot of these investors do think about it like that.
2: What's a bit different about commercial real estate than residential is that you often have businesses as tenants rather than individual people, which means their business needs to succeed in order for you to get rent each month. What can you do as a landlord to help set up your business tenants for success?
1: That's actually something that's on my mind every single time I redevelop a property. Because like you said, it's not, hey, if I don't pay my rent, typically what you said for residential, that's where they live. They're going to pay the rent. If not, they're going to be sleeping on the street. Commercial is not the case. It's almost a luxury in the sense that if you don't provide a quality product, there will be 50 other property owners that will take your lunch and take your tenant. So what's super important for me is like the things I mentioned, synergy within the property is super important for tenants to vibe with each other and to generate business and revenues off each other. Making sure your property is looking good all the time. Like I don't know if you see on my website, like this one wood jungle project that we're currently redeveloping. I spent half a million dollars on fake florals in this property for the pure reason of it looking badass. But at the same time, it's an Instagram moment where I probably get 15 to 20 photos a day or tags a day at this property for, because they're so excited to go see the artwork. And what happens is when they go see the artwork and they go see the florals and they go see the new design, oh, I want to grab a smoothie. Oh, I want to grab a donut at a donut shop. Oh, I want to grab this. And it helps provide more business and uh, attraction every project we're developing now it's going to be a attraction or an experience so that way it's not just hand coming here for business but it's an ambiance as well and i think that's super important especially now when you have so many options in amazon where it's easy to get delivered to your house that if you're not creating an experience you're not going to be standing out so black line like my look my hair my beard standing out is important i think Um, it, it helps out a lot
2: you mentioned that you're relatively new to social media, but you did post a video on social media recently where you talked about purchasing real estate with a focus on cash flow or a focus on appreciation and equity. Talk to us a bit about this dynamic and which way you think is the right approach.
1: So this is an argument I've been having with, I had with Jalal, Grant Cardone, a bunch of people. Look, there's no right or wrong answer to cash flow or equity bill. It depends where you are in your life and where you are in your career. For example. When I developed my first project that went in Atlanta, my I think my net operating income on that property was like 130,000, 140,000. If I had the mentality of a lot of these people where it's like refinancing whole, $10,000 a month in net income was not going to pay. It doesn't even cover my property tax for my home today. And I had that mentality at a really young age, I'm like, look, cash flow is great whenever you have enough of equity to benefit off that cash flow. So, if I, for example, if my net worth is a billion dollars and I'm making 5%, I can survive off $4 million a month perfectly fine if I have a billion dollars. If I have you know, a $2 million net worth and I'm making 5%, that's 100 grand a year. What kind of lifestyle am I going to have by living off 100 grand a year when 30 to 50% goes to the IRS? So for me, it was like, hey, look, I want to keep building my equity, keep building, building, building my equity to the point where it's like, okay, I've retired, I've hit my number, which I'm sure all of us have a number. But when I hit that number, then I'll put it on cash flowing assets, and then I'll live off that income for the rest of my life. Some people like to do the plan of leveraging, leveraging, leveraging at every step and cash out refi. I'm not opposed to that. the reason I don't like it is sometimes people get a little too excited, over leverage, keep doing it. And then one time when especially commercial is a little bit more volatile than residential. But if you lose three, four tenants, if your cash flow is strapped, if a COVID situation happens, and you can't afford to pay the bills and you have that kind of leverage, guess what? You're going to be handing those properties back to the bank. So that's why I shied away from that cash out refinance, and I just focused on equity building as much as I could. What is your number? You know, it changes. I've already hit my number 10 times to be honest, and it keeps growing. And I think every entrepreneur and every real estate person has that same drive. That's like, I hit my number. I can do more. I can do more.
3: Uh, Next number is a billion. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
4: Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. That's Airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high.
3: It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months.
4: That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Is that moving goalpost, is that good
2: or is that bad? Some people talk about it's good, right? You have that increased motivation that keeps coming every time you hit a goal. Some people talk about it being bad because it's like you never have enough. So where do you fall? You know,
1: it's funny because when I thought when I hit my first number...
2: I'll be running around, screaming,
1: jumping up and down, and being the entrepreneur that I am, I'm like, okay, I could do more. Let's do more. Let's try the next one. I think it's good to understand a healthy balance between if you're building the money for a reason, whatever your individual reason is. One of my reasons was I love traveling around the world. I love to give back. I love being able to buy the things I want to buy and throw parties every single year and enjoy my life to the best of my abilities, that you enjoy your wins throughout the process. If you're just going to be making the money to have a number up on a wall, it means nothing. So, for me, it's, I've always lived by the mentality of working hard and playing hard. So, having that healthy balance between the two, the numbers just become after a certain point, and I'll be guilty of this. It's just a number. You know, there's more important things to life than trying to go after that billion dollars. Do I mind getting there? No, absolutely not. But if you're not enjoying life throughout the process and you're just going to sit there and look back after 20 years, like, oh, I hit my number, but I lost out on all my 20s and 30s. And- that for me would be more disappointing. So I try, I try having the balance of a, a lifestyle that I want, as well as trying to make as much money as I possibly can.
2: I did see the most recent videos and photos that you had from your party recently. It did look pretty awesome. Thank you.
1: I appreciate it. So we have like a twice a year theme. I'm like a big Harry Potter, fantasy, Alice in Wonderland. So yeah, that for me makes it all worth it. And then we had this event for autistic kids last, uh, last week where we had a magician that went for 40 kids. Um, and then we're throwing them a Harry Potter carnival. And, you know, that's my way of giving back to the community and trying to help out. Because as kids, and I'm sure like yourself, you had some fantasy growing up or some type of whether it was Harry Potter, this or that. And like all the kids in us need to appreciate that and love ourselves. If not, again, it's like, what's the point? And I want to do whatever I could to give back to kids. Uh, That's a big thing for me, helping out kids and uh, especially ones that unfortunately have a tougher time growing up to give them that excitement because growing up, Harry Potter, I I didn't grow up with much money, but Harry Potter and that kind of excitement and fantasy really was like something I I hung my hat on and really enjoyed.
2: Yeah. I think all of that stuff is awesome. And having seen what you're doing is really cool. Do you think money buys happiness? There's a lot of talk around that and I'm curious what you think. Absolutely not. No,
1: it doesn't. I look, the grass, and I've gone through these iterations every year as my net worth has increased more and more and more. It doesn't. you know, It doesn't. Because, for example, I deal with a myriad of health issues, and I couldn't spend $10 million tomorrow to cure them all. So for me, that was one of the biggest lessons in life that money's not everything because I've got there's been enough money for tenfold and I can't cure my health problems. And I can't go buy a wife. And I've been with my wife for 10 plus for 10 years. And I'm as happy as can be. But then I see my boys that are single and all they're saying is, oh, I'm so sick of you know being with all these different girls and I want to find a wife. It's like the, the grass is always greener on the other side. I think if you can't be content with what you have, and don't get me wrong, there are certain numbers that you want to get to. Like, Whenever I was selling Jordan shoes, I was always saying, say, oh yeah, I'm fully happy. Yeah, I want to make money. I want to be able to fly first class. I'm saying there's like a, there's a healthy difference between, look, if you've got 100 million versus a billion, your life's not going to be that much different is what I'm trying to say. But if your net worth is a million versus 50 million, significantly different. There's a point of a less appreciation, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
2: That's exactly what I was going to ask next. I think there's a big difference, like you said, even to make those numbers smaller between say 100,000 and a million, or even 100,000 being 75 to 100,000 a year versus making 250 to 300,000 a year. I think there is a point where a scale where it does make a big difference in terms of life quality and happiness and things like that. And it's not that the money itself buys the happiness, but it's what the money can get you or even remove from you for the stress. But then like you said, there is a point of diminishing return where anything above that doesn't really make a difference.
1: Yeah, like like we always talking like, oh Robert, do you want a private jet? And I'm like, no. Like the cost that goes into a private jet, whether I have the money or not, is ridiculous. Like I can go donate the money or help people out. Like I'm not going to spend sixty thousand dollars on a round trip flight to Miami. That's I'll just go buy first class for three thousand dollars. Not because call me cheap, but there's better ways to spend money. I don't. I'm not one of those guys that I'm just going to blow off money just because I can. So for me, that was one of the things that. That's why I said like there's a point of diminishing return. Do I want to fly first-class to Europe and enjoy nice fine dining hotels? Absolutely. Do I want to be able to own my own home and not have to rent like I did for seven, eight years? For sure. There's things that you want to get in your life for yourself and for your family. And then after that, it's like, okay, what else do I need? I'm going to go buy a jewelry for $10 million? Yeah, not doing that. But So I guess it just depends
2: on each individual person and what matters to them. What are some of the mistakes that you've made in your investing journey over the past decade? I've made a lot of mistakes in the sense that I've
1: never, it's a good question. Look, it's knowledge. For me, it's not being knowledgeable enough about certain situations and being a gunslinger and just thinking I may or may not know everything. And it's led to mistakes. Also not scaling up fast enough. Like I said, I was was very conservative growing up. And when I had opportunities like in Miami where I could have invested more, I took the cautious route and said, look, it's better to be safe than sorry. And the whole pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered uh, mentality. I wish I would have scaled up a little faster. I wish that I would have expanded my team a little bit faster in the earlier years. But, you know, any small business owner, you're always fearful, right? Like, if I'm going to shell out a quarter of a million dollars for an attorney on salary, I'm worried because I have to pay that. So I think it was growing pains. It wasn't so much mistakes, but just growing pains and understanding things and the amount of time it took me to understand things on my own. I know a lot of people now get mentors, and maybe that could have been a route that I went, but I never had a mentor. I've never read a book. I just kind of winged things on my own and learned uh, throughout the years. So maybe getting a better knowledge base from the get-go or 10 years, 12 years ago, you didn't see this huge influx like you see now with these podcasts and these Instagram things where people are signing up for courses. It didn't really exist 15 years ago. So maybe having a little bit more of that is what I would say.
2: As we near the end of the show and we wrap up, I like to turn the tables and let the guest actually become the host for a second and ask me a question. So Robert, what question do you have for me?
1: How did I do? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, I would want to hear your perspective on some of the things I mentioned from your, from your side. Like, how, how do things in your business day-to-day run in comparison to how, I, how mine does?
2: What's interesting to me is I had a podcast. We're recording this. We started about 12.30 Eastern time. And I had a podcast that ended at 12.15, 12.20 right before this. And we, we chatted for about an hour, hour and 20 minutes. What's interesting is he had an entirely different philosophy than you. You're sticking a little bit more conservative, a little bit more 50% like loan to value type approaches to, to real estate, it sounds like. And he is more along the lines of do that cash out refinance anytime you have equity, leverage, 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 leverage to 100%, take that money and reinvest it in another property. If you have any equity in a property, take out a HELOC or a cash out refi and put that money into more investment properties and scale that way. It's really interesting to be able to hear. And, and I'm not saying your strategy is right or his is right. I don't know whose is right. And it's probably right for different people, but I'm just really interested in being able to learn from people like yourself and him. It, it's great to be able to hear the different perspectives.
1: Like I've said, there's no right or wrong in either position. One just more risk adverse versus the other. I mean, don't get, don't get me wrong. I've, I've leveraged... There's been properties where I've hard money loaned on top of my hard money loan because I did not want to lose out on an opportunity. Uh, There was a deal that I knew I could buy for, I think it was $6 million and I could sell for 15 million in 18 months. And I did not have the money. So I went and literally got a hard money loan off my property, maxed it out. And then the new property I bought, I used that equity I hard money from. And then I got another hard money loan at 75% on TV just to buy that deal. So I double hard money. And while I don't recommend it because I was sitting there cringing every night making sure that that property went well, there's times where you have to make that push. And I I think it's 100% right to do it. What I don't think is right is to do it in your entire portfolio. That's what scares the crap
2: out of me. Not even just your entire portfolio, which I do agree with, but it's also depending on where you are, right? Like You've already built substantial wealth. You don't necessarily need to take those risks. You might be trying to preserve wealth a little bit more, but people that are just getting started, they might need to take that risk in order to hit the goals and levels that they want to achieve.
1: Right. No, and that's very well said, because when I was younger, whenever I had less sub worth, I was significantly less risk averse. I was like, oh, whatever, because you don't have anything. So it's like, what am I losing? I just started with this. Now you get to a point, especially with the bigger dollar ones, like my, you know, my recent property that I, just got, I bought, I have a $25 million plus loan on it. And, you know, when I was younger, it'd be more scary. Now, you know, with the income that I have, it supports it and whatnot, but it's scary. You, like, you, you start getting loans that can hurt. If I have to pay a $25 million loan back, it can hurt. But if you got a two dollars $300,000 loan... You, know, you can borrow it from a friend. If you have a friend, There's the banks will work. It's, it's a different beast. So as, as you start building more net worth and you're used to a certain lifestyle, it's tough to go back and, and lose it. You don't want to lose it. So that's always for sure a lot more in your mind than in the beginning.
2: As we wrap up the show here, I want to give you a chance to tell the audience where the best place is to connect with you, learn more about you if they're interested.
1: Yeah. So the best place to connect with me is definitely Instagram my Instagram handle will probably be posted up here, I'm sure, is the best way to get in contact with me or through the website as well.
2: I will be sure to put a link to Robert's resources in the show notes below for anybody that's interested in checking them out. Robert, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Thank you for having me. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week.
0: Thank you for listening to TIP.